Father, I pray in this time that, um, I pray for each and every person here that there would be one thing in the duration of these next few minutes that you would anchor in their heart and that it would be a source of strength and encouragement and challenge throughout the week. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, hey, thank you for letting me be here. It's really fun. And so, of course, Andrea and I have been in and out of this church, and so it feels like a part of our church. Um, and so thank you for making it home. Thank you for the worship um, and just for the exuberance and excitement that you have led us in. And I think, too, for the women in this women's uh, Bible study that during COVID, that uh, for my wife is a really strong strength for her. And so you have been a ministry to us, and so it's an honor to um, minister back. Uh, we're going to start, uh, hopefully, just to make sure you're awake after a long uh, reading uh, with some interaction. So just quick, we're not going to do it a lot, so don't worry. Take a deep breath. But I'm, I'm interested to know from you, what is your favorite story or book because of its ending? So your favorite ending from a story or book, what's the title of that? Throw it out. Fellowship of the Rings. I mean, how can you beat that? But... Let's try. <laughs> Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. I mean, we're not going to tell you what happened, but it's good. <laughs> oh, he's one up the Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Let's just go through all of Tolkien's books. <laughs> but you're so true. Anything else? Yes. I mean, Lewis, of course, um, weaves in such a wonderful ending in Last Battle. I mean, y'all missed Legally Blonde. <laughs> that valedictorian speech, it is priceless. <laughs> um, I, too, though, like the epic endings. I like um, Odysseus and this long journey and travails that he goes through in the sea, but then coming back and finding all these suitors there and how do you get rid of them and devising this scheme where they have to string up his bow and shoot it through 12 axe handles and where he dresses kind of a beggar and does that and then reclaims his rightful, you know, heir. I like that. Um, I too um, like, you know, the battles of Helm's Deep is one of my favorite Tolkien. I mean, how can you beat look to the east and ah, oh, there they come. Victory is here. Or even Avengers Endgame. Um, I mean, it's just great. I mean, is Cap going to stay alive with uh, Iron Man and Thor and those magical circles come and then the whole MCU appears and you're just like, yes. The last 10 years of my life is worth it <laughs> in this very moment. Um, and you think of these like epic stories and epic endings, and you think, like, how is the book of Luke Acts? Like, it should be set up for a really epic ending. I mean, I know they're separated in our Bibles with Luke in one place and Acts in another. Of course, they're written together. And you have like one third of the New Testament captured in these two books uh, of this powerful story right, where you have God himself coming to earth as the fulfillment of God's covenant story with Israel and the whole world, starting as a baby, as if he is going to rewire the genetic code of mankind in every stage of humanity. And we see this God-man emerge as the hero, proclaiming in the early chapters of Luke that the kingdom of God has come, a kingdom that we see in his parables, his teaching, and the people that he interacts with and touches is a kingdom that restores the physical and the spiritual and the social well-being of people. A kingdom of love and compassion and forgiveness and care for others. A kingdom of justice and reversal, 
where the poor and the pressed and the marginalized are lifted up while the powerful and the rich are challenged. And then Luke moves into this section, chapter 9 through 19, where it focuses on his journey to Jerusalem, a key plot point in his kingdom mission. But as Jesus manifests this profound power of the spirit and the rule of God on that journey, the religious leaders are like the entitled son in that prodigal son parable, who can't understand why the father is lavishing grace on these young hooligans when they have stayed by the father, one where they have defined family and the inheritance of what it means to be in God's family in terms very similar to themselves and exclusive to themselves. And that road of Jerusalem ends in the trial against Jesus brought on by those Jewish leaders after Jesus shares the Passover meal as that was shared before Israel, before they left Egypt, making the bread and wine symbols of the new exodus that Jesus is about to lead his people. And the trial, the cowardice of the Roman officials climaxes at the crucifixion of our hero king, where Jesus demonstrating the very nature of the kingdom by forgiving the thief who's beside him and forgiving the soldiers that are crucifying him, not only reveals in this crucifixion the depravity of mankind who is willing to kill the one whose sole purpose was to lavishly mend and free it, but paradoxically uses this crucifixion God does to cancel the crippling debt of mankind's past, present, and future sin by offering a pure, unblemished, and willing sacrifice of the infinitely valuable Son of God. The former age, marked by sin, evil, and death, dies when the God's anointed one on the cross. And three days later, the new age begins. The stone is rolled away. The resurrected king emerges, eating and teaching his disciples about how he has fulfilled the scriptures, showing them that the ambition of God is far greater than Roman conquest through the military might. But he wants to establish a path to a grander Eden where God, his people, and creation can prosper on earth together with the serpent's venom removed. And this type of kingdom will also not grow by force, but through the example and the proclamation of his disciples, he will empower with the spirit, his very spirit, to infuse the world with grace and truth and the love of God. And that's where Acts begins. The hero king, the first conqueror of death, ascends to his heavenly throne where he rules on high through his spirit in his people, leaving his disciples to be the exhortation of his witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, which is basically Rome because the epicenter of the world, you get there, you get everyone, which also gives structure to the book of Acts. And we will see the gospel travel in that order. It begins with Jerusalem on the feast of Pentecost, a feast of blessing of new harvest, where the spirit is given his disciples as tongues of fire, like the fire of God's presence that hovered before the tabernacle or above the tabernacle. Now the fire of God's presence is where his, this hero's king's people gather. That's the place where God dwells. 
It is this reversal of the, the Tower of Babel, where God caused people to speak in all sorts of languages to thwart their ability to do evil. Now the spirit of the resurrection kings allows this diverse group to speak to one another, to accelerate his kingdom building work in its manifold diversity and beauty. And so the disciples and the many added to the number that day on Pentecost spread out, many returning home because they are on pilgrimage there to Jerusalem during the feast. And they bear witness to this new kingdom sharing their possessions, healing, preaching and teaching about this hero king. And then the gospel goes into Gentile territory. Praise the Lord, that's where we come in. <laughs> Moving out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria with Paul as the primary missionary to the Gentiles. And his God-given mission to the Gentiles in his words is said like this in Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Paul does this through three missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor and Greece, creating new churches, but also new enemies. For those who lose advantage by this equalizing nature of the kingdom, it gets him thrown in jail. And then he has to go to trial. He does it with the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 23, then to Governor Felix in chapter 24. And Governor Felix just wants like some money to get him out of it, but Paul's not gonna give it to him. And so for two years, he just sits in prison. It's God's primary point guard gets benched for two years. And maybe though we are important, it's a reminder that we might not be as important as we think we are. He goes before Governor Festus in chapter 25, King Agrippa in chapter 26, and seeing the brokenness of this judicial system, he takes his Roman right and he appeals to go straight to Caesar in Rome. That's where he knows he's supposed to head, as Acts 23, 11, God tells him that's where he's going. And so he appeals to Caesar, and he's a prisoner on the boat to get to Rome that we read about, overcoming incredible difficulty on sea, to make it to Rome, the epicenter of power. And, and this is where I think the epic ending should come in. Like this is where the IMAX scene should be, where Paul comes before Caesar and he gets a little mouthy, right? He proclaims that Caesar's kingdom is but an illusion. His very power and his very breath is just a gift given him from the true king who is now reigning over not only the world, but the cosmos, which you can imagine doesn't go well. <laughs> so Caesar says off to the Colosseum, feed him to the animals. And so that's when the IMAX scene like zooms in with the kind of the dust of the, of the Colosseum floor and kind of starts zooming out and you see these 12 lions coming at him. They haven't been fed for weeks and weeks and they're coming to attack and they, they start the roars coming in and then like Paul just lifts his hand and suddenly there's these purrs from these lions that kind of circle around his legs like cats and then just lay down a very Daniel-like moment to which he steps over continuing his cadence to where a huge snake, obviously bred to be bigger than normal, starts coming into attacking to which, you know, it comes in and rears with the music, of course, intensifying at this point. And Paul just reaches out and grabs the snake to which it starts solidifying, straightening up into a staff. And that's where the tension kind of goes across the arena, even within Caesar, who's watching this, thought he was going to be satisfied with death. Now is a little afraid. And suddenly the gladiators are released in all of their armor to come after him. But Paul, his voice amplifies, says, Caesar, you only see with your eyes 
And what you see, you seek to conquer. But you can't see the power and the army that is greater to you, to which he takes that staff and slams it, and boom! The angelic armies just surround the sky where the gladiators are going, <laughs> coming back to that. And then, boom! Blindness goes across Caesar and his military, where he goes, may your blindness allow you to see people as more than something to control and to conquer. And then he turns to the crowd and goes, if you want to meet a king, an emperor, who's more interested in ruling through you than over you as a part of God's royal family, look for the people of the way. Boom, the gate falls down. Paul just walks out and Acts ends with the kingdom of God circulates all throughout the land like wildflower. And then if it was a movie like The Chosen, it, you'd have that <laughs> Acts and Luke and, you know. It doesn't go like that though. <laughs> like this is, this is when you get to the Rome, Acts 28, 16. And when they came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. He's in house arrest. Like the book ends with him confined to his house under the control of the Roman government. And yes, he uses it. Like he calls out to the Jews. He lets them know what he's been doing. He tries to teach them about Jesus and how the fulfillment of the, the prophets, half of them are like, I don't believe this. Half of them are like, yeah, we're into it. But he goes, hey, listen, those who can't believe, this is why the Gentiles are going to, to come out. And this is what the, the last verse of this epic story is. Paul lived in this house for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I mean, he's, he's doing Bible study in his house. I mean, it's cool, but you're kind of like, really? Like, where's the spectacle? Where's the grandeur? Where's the authoritative display of victory? It might be the, one of the reasons that, like it was three months ago that uh, I had to teach a five minute lesson on this to my son's Sunday school. And I was like, I, I don't think I've ever read this. <laughs> I, I don't know if I remember what happens at the end of, of Acts. A story, you know, that, that it, just, it just didn't mark in my mind. But that time, as I've delved into it, it's become something I'm helped by and deeply moved by. As this last couple of chapters hint at all sorts of themes throughout Luke's and Acts in very creative and beautiful ways. And specifically, it's been very helpful for me in my journey on being a witness of the hero king, which I've found hard in the secular world. Like I miss preaching about it and telling you to go do it, you know, where you just go, yeah, you need to be faithful out in the world. See you next week. <laughs> when you're doing it day in and day out, it's difficult. And I'm not very good at it, but I want to be. And so more than preach in these remaining minutes that we have, I'd really just like to share with you how these last two chapters of Acts, a book devoted to bearing witness to this hero king uh, throughout all the, the, the earth, has helped me at least take small steps to do that a little better as we continue and as I continue that work today. So 
So it counts as a sermon. I'm going to break it into three quick parts because you got to get credit. I know some of y'all are getting nervous. If we don't have three points, then we might have to stay for another one. Um, the, the first scene is the supper on the sea, where the witness of gratitude in the chaos of life through sanctification of Christ. Second scene is the snake bite without lasting bite. That's the witness of standing against evil through the victory of Christ. The third scene is sick being made well, witness to the comforting touch of healing through the spirit of Christ. There's a lot we could have covered. There's a whole lot in this, but I'm going to isolate it to a few points throughout this. The first one being scene one, the supper on the sea, satisfied gratitude in the chaos of life. Most of the last two chapters, as we heard read, it's just it's a lot of words. I mean, it's a long, long chapter about boats, um, which kind of is the question, why? Like, why would you devote that much attention? For us, words are cheap now, but it was expensive back then to print these things. And so every word was very intentional. And I think one of those is just like Luke went through it. And so once you've been through that story, you're going to tell it. <laughs> I think literarily it was a common in ancient literature for the sea to be a rightful judge of a person, swallowing the guilty or redeeming the worthy. You see Jonah, when he goes to the sea, he's found guilty. When you see Odysseus gone in the sea, then his journey, he's found worthy. And so you have Paul delivered from the sea, and as we'll discuss later, saved from a bite of a snake. And it's evidence in this journey that he's vindicated. This is the real trial for Paul. And God marks on him that what he says is true. They say it in the, Jew, in like in the Roman period, it's like the gods of the sea has vindicated you. But for those who follow Christ um, within the audience that he's writing, they know it's the true God. But I think narratively, it's a wonderful and creative way to set this context of life as a disciple. It's unpredictable. Like the symbolism of the sea, particularly for the Israelites, they were not a sea people. They did not like the sea. The sea was known as the place of chaos and peril and monsters. Daniel 7 is prophetic vision. You have these monsters coming out of the sea, the four monsters. Revelation 13, the ten-horned, seven-hooded beast comes out of the sea in Revelation. It's why Revelation in the new heavens and earth, the sea is removed. That chaos and peril is no longer part of the new creation. Uh, you know that Taylor and Duncan um, are on this cold shower kick. Is that too, like, is that too much? <laughs> too vulnerable in this time? <laughs> and so they, they find it rejuvenating, and I think they might be a little off. And so um, when we went to the ocean this summer, I joined them in a plunge to the cold, freezing ocean for a morning swim just to confirm that they are indeed a little off. Um, and it, I was struck by how scary the ocean is. I mean, there are all sorts of unknown creatures, unknown currents, these rocks that have little daggers all over them. And you're in the middle of the ocean, and I have absolutely no control. I am just lost to wherever it takes me, particularly when you run out of strength. It's anxiety-producing. And this whole sea narrative, I think, is reflective of the entire journey of Paul, where he is blown every which way, based on how people in that particular town or region respond to his message, on how the Jewish leaders find him and try and block him or get him kicked out or try to get him killed, how the city officials of Rome respond there, or even the impact of interpersonal struggles like he has with Barnabas. All these things, he is just going back and forth. It is not a straight line to the ends of the earth or to Rome or where his, his calling has delivered him. He is constantly having to adjust. And so you wonder, like, how does Paul respond to the inevitable unpredictability and even difficulty that comes with bearing the cross of the hero king? And I think you see this calm presence of Paul, even as a prisoner in the ship, and his confidence rests in the promise and sovereignty of God at the, the end of this sea journey 
with the anxiety and exhausting the crew, you see such a picture of how to respond from Paul. In Acts 27, 33 through 36, he says to this crew, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish in the head of any of you. Promise that God had revealed to him on the boat. And when he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. He's reenacting a type of the Lord's Supper, right? And he's fusing these two critical components of being a potent witness in the world. Number one, it's being filled, being satisfied with Christ, fed by the life of Christ that allows for the rest and confidence in the chaos of life and gratitude, recognition of the abundant grace that is infused everywhere around us, which results in the others on the boat being encouraged and eating this blessed meal themselves. He opens the opportunity so they can taste and see that the Lord is good. We live in a time where there are all sorts of anxieties in the chaotic waters in which we live. Political anxieties, Fox News versus CNN, geopolitical anxieties, Russian and Ukraine, other national actors, economic anxieties with inflation, with job insecurity, environmental anxiety with global warming and these stream weather events, all stoked by an internet technology that can interpret your viewing habits and surface ads to you that will target your greatest fears because you'll click on it and generate revenue for them. All of this means that the normal, like the, the, the normal day life is anxious for our culture. Add to that the normal anxieties that we just have of life with family and with relationships and with our health. It's not hard for people to imagine life being trapped at sea at the discretion of the winds and the waves, wherever it might take us. For me, it was interesting in Amazon because we hit COVID-19 when I started and suddenly we had to shift from this demand so everyone's working all these excess hours. And then that starts to temper off and suddenly it's the first round of layoffs ever in the history of Amazon where 20% of people are, are laid off and you're looking around feeling relieved that you're not one of them, but then kind of guilty that someone else had to be that. And then they start saying, okay, I know we thought that we were going to be able to work remotely, but I need you to come in, even if you're a virtual role. And so people are having to, to relocate their, their place of residence and their family's life to come back to keep their job. All of these things back to back. And it's so easy for the narrative to be this toxic culture where there's just a reaffirmation of all the things that are unfair and unjust within, within the world, though some of those things are incredibly true. But I want to be... Paul. And I want to be the voice that's constantly offering thanks. Instead of fueling more anxiety and despair, frustration and bitterness, thanks for the abundant grace of Christ that is all around me. And the people and the circumstances that surround me out of the fullness of life that I have with Christ, nurtured by prayer and scripture and with other people. I think now more than ever, gratitude has the, empowered, the power to encourage people and to provoke their appetite for a source that can truly satisfy. So that's the first witness lesson I've gotten, is be grateful in chaos, uh, in the chaos of life through satisfaction in Christ. The second scene 
is the snake bite without lasting bite, standing against evil through the victory of Christ. After the shipwrecked, where the crew is offered salvation, lots more that we can get into, but we don't have time. Paul and his crew ended up on the island of Malta and this, the native islanders there. And one of the first things that happened in Acts 28, three through six says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because the heat had fastened and it fastened to his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You kind of see that worldview that we were talking about in the justice side of things. But Paul, however, shook the creature off in the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly to fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind about him and said he was a god. <laughs> I'm going from extreme right here. But I love this, this picture. The, the snake bite is such a potent picture of the unfortunate and unforeseen tragedies that occur in a fallen world. The direct and indirect bites of evil and the evil one. But Paul gives us a gospel picture. The snake's venom no longer has power. Such strong echoes from the, the, the garden and that serpent of the Satan who can still bite in this age, but his venom has been extracted from the hero king. And this victory definitely interests these island people who now see Paul as, as a god, which he just redirects to the true god. It is a powerful witness, I think, when we are able to frame evil done to us or to others within the victory of the hero king. For me, it's simply a call to be more bold, to speak out against injustice that I see, strong theme throughout Luke and Acts, and advocate for those who don't have a voice which in my role is often the frontline worker who's packing boxes. It's easy to play office politics and the promotion game to try and avoid ruffling feathers and to put sophisticated titles on that makes even, uh, evil sound better, like cost-cutting company policy, hedging for variability, or just following industrial norms. It does feel, if I speak out, that I, however strategically or um, thoughtfully, that I could have the, the fatal bite of losing the career and spiraling into oblivion. But if I can be rooted and show that there's a greater power, there's a sure foundation in my life than my career or the things that provide at this point on an earthly basis, I think that showcasing the justice of the kingdom of God and the compassion of Christ can create interest in the hero king that can offer those who are interested such victory, just like those village people. So that's the, the second lesson of witness that I've gotten from this story is, how can I stand against evil through the victory that has been won for me? And the final scene is the sick being made well, being a comforting touch of healing through the spirit of Christ. That's in Acts 28, seven through nine. Now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belong to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay um, sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when he, this had taken place, the rest of the people of the island who had disease also came and were cured. I will be brief on this, but we see throughout the life of Christ, throughout the life of his disciples, and we see here in Paul that they all bring healing into the world through the power of the Spirit. There are so many people around us that are hurting. There are so many people who are hurting in deep ways that are more than just physical, 
but psychologically and emotionally. I've had three coworkers who just had gone through a death of a family loved one, and they didn't have a place to go because our culture has removed death behind curtain where we can't see anything, and then people are just awkward and don't know how to respond. So it opens up this pastoral ministry just to step in and to be a safe space to say, hey, I'm here and there's hope. Additionally, there's such a strong emphasis today on creating your own truth and living the life where you're responsible for creating your own happiness. But inevitably, when people come up against some circumstance or force that is beyond what they can control, it crumbles their entire world. And they're left lost. And I think it is a powerful witness to be there, having built that relationship to offer a healing touch in those times. A miraculous healing, which candidly, I could use more growth in understanding fully that. Practical help, encouraging words, support, healing in whatever form is a powerful witness to the soul of every individual. Witness lesson three, be comforting touch of healing through the spirit of Christ, the comforter. To conclude, my main point or what I've gotten out of the study is that being a witness for Christ is not a Hollywood ending. It isn't easy, it isn't a grand spectacle, it isn't a one and done. Such isn't consistent with the kingdom of God, which works like a seed. It is hard to see and it takes time and sometimes it develops in ways that you never saw coming. The end of Acts provided me with something more realistic and comforting. Paul is limited, he is confined, he is constrained, but that is okay for him. He just uses his house arrest to invite anyone who'll listen to train them in who this hero king is. And then he writes letters to churches that are still ministering to us today and were a powerful fuel for the spread of the kingdom generations after his life. That has been helpful for me. I'm not in house arrest, but I am limited right now to the walls and the people I work, to the time and the commitments to my family, to the location where I live, to the church in which we belong, and the limited energy that I have, which feels like it's getting lower and lower as the years go by. Instead of feeling guilty for not being a Christian superstar, leading really just to more inactivity, I felt the freedom through this and sitting in these, these scriptures to do the small things in the small ways in my work, in my church, my family, in the limits of my time and energy by being grateful in the chaos through a satisfaction in Christ, by standing against evil where I can through the victory of Christ, by providing that comforting touch and the opportunity has through the comforting power of the Spirit of God, and praying in those small and large ways as the opportunities come that God might use it to draw people into his exciting, redeeming, invigorating kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you went on an incredible journey to come down to rescue us. And we thank you that you have given us everything. And pray that you might, throughout this week, just minister to us, allowing us to understand how we might be filled with you. And out of that fullness of your gift to us in the Spirit, reaching out to those around us, offering them hope of gratitude, of contentment, 
of pushing back evil and of healing and comfort. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.